So let's get into our text this morning. The parable of the mustard seed and the leaven from Matthew chapter 13 verses 31 to 35. So we are in a, in a short series this past few weeks looking at the parables of the kingdom. So far we have looked at the workers in the vineyard, the tares and the wheat, treasure and the pearl and the growing seed last week. And some of these parables have clearer meanings or understandings, interpretations. But there are those parables, like the ones that we are looking at this morning, that are a little bit more puzzling. So as you can imagine, many over the years, many scholars have speculated and come up with different and various interpretations of what they mean. Some are, are close to the mark, I feel, and some of the others are a little bit far-fetched. So we are looking this morning at these two parables, two short parables together, as I believe that they, they present uh, a similar lesson, but with slight variations between one and the other. Now, the parable of the mustard seed is a story of something very small producing enormous outward growth. The parable of the, the leaven also starts out small and grows, but this time the growth is internal. And both are wonderful pictures of the gospel of grace as it goes into the world and the effect that it has. But before we get to the parables themselves, I want us to go to the end of our text, our passage this morning. So we're going to start at the end and then go back to the beginning, just to confuse you a little bit more. reason I'm doing this is because Jesus, more than just being a great teacher, he was also a discriminating teacher. What does discriminate mean? Well, I can already hear the cries, right? Oh, discrimination! No, that's not what I'm saying. There are different definitions of discriminating. For example... I'm able to discriminate by looking at your face, whether you're happy or sad. That is discrimination. I'm able to, to know in that way. Babies, if you look at uh, babies, for example, are able to look at you, mum and dad, and see and discriminate whether you're happy or sad or angry, right? So uh, even your dog is able to tell whether you're angry. So dogs are able to discriminate and tell what mood you're in. So, Jesus being a discriminating teacher means that he was able to, and being God, he's able to discriminate between the tares and the wheat. Know the difference. He's able to discriminate between the sheep and the goats. Between good and evil. And again... I know, because we're so overwhelmed by the word discrimination these days that it tarnishes our, even our understanding, even as I say that. 
And maybe even as I say that, I can hear the cries of, but that's not fair. Yes, we spoke about our sense of fairness compared to God's in our first parable of the the workers in the vineyard. Remember that? Fact is, not everyone was meant to understand everything that Jesus was saying. And while this statement is very controversial, all your antennas, heresy antennas are ding, 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 they're going off at the moment. While this statement is controversial, it is also biblical. So now that I've got your attention, let's look at the text. Revealing and concealing versus, uh, we go back beyond our text this morning to Matthew chapter 13, verses 10 to 13, and then we're going to read verses 34 and 35. So starting at uh, verses 10 to 13, the disciples came to him and asked, Why do you speak to the people in parables? And he replied, Because the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you, but not to them. Do we get that? Okay, that's discrimination, right? Whoever has will be given more, and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. Ding, ding, ding. But that's not fair. This is why I speak to them in parables. Though seeing, they do not see. Though hearing, they do not hear or understand. Lock that in. Then we go in verses 34 to 35. Jesus spoke all these things to the crowds in parables. He did not say anything to them without using a parable. So was fulfilled what was spoken through the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables and I will utter things hidden since the creation of the world. So bringing both of these passages together, and I had to read them both because so you can get a a clearer understanding of what Matthew 13, and by the way, Matthew 13 is all about the parables of the kingdom. So you you can understand the context. And in in, in our first uh, verses from Matthew 13, 10 to 13, the disciples came to Jesus and in effect they are saying to him, Teacher, shouldn't you be clearer, straightforward, rather than confuse them with parables? Yet Jesus did this quite deliberately. When he spoke of the truths of the kingdom... He didn't intend for everyone to understand those truths. That's a shock, isn't it? This is why he spoke these truths to the crowds in parables. 
They were stories designed by him to reveal truth as well as conceal truth. Now, the, the speaking forth of these things is for everyone, everywhere. But the understanding of them, the true hearing and seeing of them, is not. Make no mistake, within these parables are the greatest truths that can be known by man because they reveal the mysteries of the kingdom. They go back, 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 all the way to creation. But a grasp of the truths of the kingdom is a selective, discriminating matter, enabled by the Holy Spirit to open our eyes, to open our ears, to open our hearts, to hear and absorb and understand the truth. Let me ask you, when you hear truth like this, when you hear truth presented to you, do you go fall asleep, do you go ho-hum or simply fall asleep when they are presented to you? Or does your heart skip a beat and long to hear more? Tell me more, I'm hungry. Because this is exactly what Jesus is talking about here. Now, that's a very big topic in and of itself. Last week we spoke about the different church growth techniques and the advice from so-called church growth experts who told us that if we simply package the gospel in the right way and don't talk a lot about sin or repentance or hell, then people will come to church. Soften the blow, soften the message, make it make it more appealing to the crowds and that multitudes of seekers will be saved. Yet Jesus told us if we read the Gospels correctly without blinkers, without filters, Jesus did tell us quite clearly that the Gospel will actually offend more people than it will attract. Now to the parables. Small beginnings, verse 31. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed which a man took and planted in his field. It is interesting that when the incarnate creator through whom the universe was created when he became man and started to teach us about the kingdom, he, didn't, he had so much material that he could compare the kingdom of God with, which could blow our mind. He could have compared the kingdom of God to the stars, the galaxies, the majestic mountains, even the vast oceans. And yet Jesus compares the kingdom to a tiny 
mustard seed. He did this because it is the greatest result compared with the original size of the seed, what you start with. Did you know that he takes about 750 mustard seeds to make up a single gram? You've been counting, right? I haven't. Just pick this up somewhere. And, and, and while the mustard seed is, is not the smallest seed known to man, it was the smallest seed planted in the gardens of Jesus' day. And it was proverbial in his day, therefore, for something really small. So he adopts it here and, and to bring this powerful lesson. He also uses the, must, the mustard seed to teach us an important lesson about faith. You remember, you recall the passage from Matthew seventeen twenty, that you don't need a giant faith for God to act. For God to do something. God can do something even if your faith is the size of a mustard seed. That's very encouraging, right? And similarly, when he describes the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God, how vast and and (laughs) immense it is, right? Our minds cannot comprehend it. When he compares the kingdom of God as something tiny, almost insignificant, easily overlooked by everyone, I think everybody who was listening to him would have understood his point and they would have been shocked. Come on, give us a bigger picture. Give us, give us an overwhelmer. Blow our minds. No, he just goes the other way and goes into something really small. In his day, when most people looked at Jesus, all they could see is a tiny seed. He was born in a nothing corner of the Roman Empire, in a nothing village, to nothing parents. So most people thought that nothing would come of Jesus and his ministry. And there are many, of course, today who mock Jesus in the same way and his claims to be God and saviour of men. Many, many even deny that he ever existed. That's nothing, right? But again, this is God's wisdom, as Paul told us in 1 Corinthians 1.18, that God chose the lowly things, the lowly things of this world and despised things, and, and the despised things, and the things that are not. The things that are not. That means nothing, right? The things that aren't. To nullify the things that are. And last week we saw how the man scattered a bunch of seeds almost carelessly on the ground, right? As he was carrying on. In contrast, this fellow is more meticulous, more, more careful as he picks up a tiny mustard seed and plants it in his field. 
he measures a gram and then he separates it. Not, I'm going to do away with 769 of them. I'm going to pick one. Who does that? Who does that? He picks a, a tiny mustard seed and plants it in his field. And now he takes a lot of faith, doesn't it, to just plant one seed. When you can just grab a handful, right? Isn't that what you and I do when we put something in the ground? Normally you grab a bunch of seed and just in case some of them fail to germinate, at least one of them has to succeed, right? But this guy says, no, one is enough. Furthermore, this man had his own garden, his own field. He didn't put this seed in somebody else's field. Spurgeon on this makes a point that he said, it's important that we all have our field, our own garden. What he meant is a sphere of service where we use our gifts and our talents, where we do the planting, where we are planted. Because, you see, you know I know many Christians who don't belong to any church, but they belong to the worldwide church. So they never commit themselves to, to a authority or, or to a, a group of people or to any particular church. And here, there and everywhere they go cultivating to the whole world, but nowhere in particular. How different is that to what Jesus called us? He called us to a church, to a com- community of brothers and sisters to whom we are committed and they are committed to us. Now, many times we hear that appearances can be a bit deceiving and that is certainly the case here because you see what appears to be inadequate, small, insignificant is actually what God uses to advance his kingdom against all odds. And that ought, I think, you to be, that ought to be a very encouraging message to all of us, especially for those of us for whom the glass appears to be almost always half empty rather than half full. We need to go to God's word to be encouraged and I think this is one of those encouraging passages that lets us do that. And then in verse 32, continued growth. And though it is the smallest of the seeds, yet when it grows, it is the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds come and perch in its branches. Like a mustard seed in the ground, the kingdom will undergo a slow but steady progress. In John 12:24, this is what Jesus said. He said, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Jesus despised and rejected. He told us that his death will be like the sowing of that first seed that will bear worldwide fruit. 
It might not look like much right now, but it will grow until the birds of the air come and nest and find refuge in its branches. And Jesus gets this picture from a prophecy of Ezekiel where the Lord promises that he will establish his people like a tree and where the nations, all of the nations will find refuge within it. And this is what Ezekiel 17 verses 22 to 23 say. This is what the sovereign Lord says. I myself will take a shoot from the very top of a cedar and plant it. I will break off a tender sprig from its topmost shoots and will plant it on a high and lofty mountain. On the mountain heights of Israel I will plant it. It will produce branches and bear fruit and become a splendid cedar and birds of every kind will nest in it. They will find shelter in the shade of its branches. A lot of imagery there, isn't there? A lot of wonderful pictures. And what started off with just Jesus and and, and 12 uneducated fishermen has continued to grow, hasn't it? How many attempts, just think about how many attempts in the last 2,000 years have there been to eradicate Christianity from the face of the earth? Think of all the persecutions. Think of all the Christians that have been burned at the stake. Think of all the scriptures that have been burned, all the scrolls. It is a miracle of God that we're still here and we wouldn't be here unless it was something of God. Voltaire, some, the French philosopher, some 250 years ago, he said, he said that within 100 years, Christianity would be extinct. Today, unsurprisingly, in the current environment that we live in, they are saying the same thing will happen within 50 years. That Christianity will disappear from the West, it will disappear from England and America and Australia, that it will be no more. Bring it on, I say. Bring it on. If he's proven you wrong in the past, he will prove you wrong again and again. Uh, Because God always has his remnant. God always has his seeds planted here and there and everywhere, in every nation, in every corner of the globe. And if if Christianity, by, by some reason, through persecution or through... Whatever it is, that, that, that the gospel is suppressed and they're going to start shutting down our churches and our Bible studies and, 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 and not allow us to meet together again, I can tell you that it's going to blossom in Africa and Asia and many other places. It will continue. It will continue to grow. Even in Russia where for 50 years since the Bolshevik Revolution, 1917, they said, oh, Christianity is finished. As soon as they started going in, they found all these different places, the underground church and other faithful Christians just coming to life and says, nobody, no, they couldn't silence us. God's remnant will continue. 
no matter what you do. Wherever you find true believers, you find the kingdom of heaven at work. People from every tribe and language and nation will have found eternal homes under the shade of God's kingdom, in his church, wherever, however that looks like. There will come a day when the vast multitude, revelations tell us, that we can't even count, that cannot be numbered, will kneel before the throne and, and, and praise him for eternity for his grace for saving them. That's the eternal promise, isn't it? So after 2,000 years of Christianity, what do you think of his kingdom? Well, for all its progress, the kingdom, we have to say, remains comparatively small, doesn't it? Often opposed, mocked, ridiculed, dismissed, dismissed as, as irrelevant for our modern times. And believers are forever, forever questioning themselves. You know, like, maybe we're, doing, we're not doing it right. Maybe our message and our prayers are antiquated. But don't be fooled by the pyrotechnics and the glitz and the glamour and simply say, oh, wow, that's where the kingdom is. That's where it's happening. Because, you see, Thinking like that belittles the mustard mustard seed work of many devoted brothers and sisters throughout the world whose life of faith is more alive than you and I will ever know. Some of them are languishing in jails. Some of them are under the spectre of persecution. They don't know if they're going to be alive tomorrow. And yet... The kingdom of God is at work right there. Verse 33, hidden power. He told them still another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into about 30 kilograms of flour. So now the image changes from the field to the kitchen. While trees are visible, yeast or or leaven is invisible. A batch of yeast continues to be used from one bake to the next as you make their bread. And and the, the fermented dough from a previous baking is reserved and then mixed with the flour to leaven the whole batch of dough for the next baking. And what is yeast? Well, yeast is nothing more than a microscopic fungus that multiplies rapidly under the right conditions. It is a catalyst which causes change in the things it is mixed into. That's what it is. And the earliest foods made with the yeast were beer, wine, and bread. Now, in the case of bread, as the yeast multiplies and ferments, 
It gives off carbon dioxide, which produces the bread to rise and expand. Yes, carbon dioxide, that horrible, horrible thing that everybody, you know, well, you're eating it. Now, in the New Testament, leaven is often symbolic for what? For corrupting influence. Jesus warned of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees because he was targeting their, their teaching and their hypocrisy. That's from Luke chapter 12, verse 1. Yet here, Jesus uses the image of, of yeast or leaven for something glorious, not something sinister, something destructive. The point is not that yeast is inherently evil, but that it is pervasive and powerful in what? In its influence. There's a Jewish tradition that goes like this, that when a Jewish girl was married, her mother would give her a small piece of leavened dough from the batch baked just before the wedding. And from that gift of leaven, the bride would take bread for her own household throughout her married life. That gift, simple as it was, was among the most cherished that the bride received because it represented the love and blessings of the household in which she grew up in. And that would be carried into her own household and her own children's household when they leave home and so the tradition continues of the, 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 the original dough, the original leaven. It's shared through generations to generations. Think of that. Isn't that what we do? What we try to do with our children and grandchildren to instill in them the, the love of God and the gospel? We plant that little seed, that little end, the, the yeast, the leaven that we want them to, we want them influenced positively for the kingdom. That as they leave, that they will start in their own homes and continue that. Continue the blessing that they received in their home. And this is where we come to the growing influence, verse 33, just that last part of verse 33. Growing influence until it worked all through the dough, it says. So the woman, this is before we used to have bread makers and, uh, you know, all the automatic uh, electrical stuff that we have today. We actually used to have to mix the, the flour and the bread and the yeast all together and, and worked it. Did you ever do that? Oh, you've forgotten, right? And, and the mix and everything you used to get in your fingernails and, and you continue to mix it and, and work it and bash it and, and turn it and fold it and knead it and push it. A lot of fun. By the time she was through... You couldn't see the small amount of yeast that was put into it. But it was there. It's been there all along. And soon it would make its influence, its presence felt. You walk away, you come back, 
right? It would spread and, and even though it was a very small amount, it will expand through the rest of the dough. So if the parable of the mustard seed emphasises extensive growth, the parable of the leaven or the yeast emphasises intensive power of the kingdom, internal. Just as a little yeast makes a much greater volume of flour to rise, the kingdom grows by an invisible power. Its influence is pervasive, It is permeating and spreading into the world through God's people, you and me. This does not mean that everyone welcomes it or that somehow everyone will end up being saved. It doesn't say that. But it does mean is that all the world will benefit from the presence of of Christians, of God's kingdom within societies at all levels, whether in levels of government, whether in the levels of the workers or the the business owners, whoever they may be. Wherever you are, that's where the kingdom of God is because God is there. It does mean that the world will benefit. That is called common grace. However, if this revealed truth is laid to one side, suppressed and kept silent for a season, at least, it will not grow. And God has all the time in the world, mind you. It will not grow. Spurgeon on this point uh, reminds us that for almost a thousand years during the Dark Ages, yes, there were spots here and there, for example, St. Patrick in, in Ireland, amazing story there, and, and little outbreaks here and there, not completely suppressed, right, but, but most of civilization at that time was suppressed. We call it Dark Ages. So, and the Gospel lay, as it would appear, dormant or, or, or sleeping in old books, in libraries of monasteries until 500 years ago, Martin Luther and his fellow reformer, reformers, they, they fetched it, they fetched this, this, this seed this, and, and they, this batch of yeast and they sowed it into the minds of men. We call it the Great Reformation. And this gospel truth has been, if the success was there, it's because the truth is mighty. It has prevailed. But it needed courageous people to stand up and to give it life and to give it voice. And this is why God used people like Martin Luther and John Calvin and others, to transform society. Unfortunately, the times of peace and prosperity that we are enjoying have made us somewhat complacent, hasn't it? 
And because of that, we fail to appreciate just how wonderful the, the benefits, some of the wonderful changes that common grace, through Christianity, common grace has, has enabled our society to progress. And we fail to appreciate how the life of Jesus, that single seed, and his gospel have positively changed the course of the world. Common grace. There were no hospitals before. There were no schools. There was slavery. Some of the things obviously took a lot longer to to change than others. The equality between man, irrespective of colour or race, that was all brought on by Christianity. On the flip side, as we can see, unfortunately, the more that society moves away from God's precepts, his laws, his principles, the more difficult that things will become for everyone, for society in general, and because we live in this society, Christians included. It will become more difficult. I can't, we can't move away from that. And it breaks our heart, seeing what is, what is happening. Because we've seen through history what happens when that happens. Most news items these days is about the palpable anger and hostility that is out there. And people seeking to destroy our historical roots. And and in their crosshairs, in their crosshairs is Christianity. They've already started burning Bibles in, in Portland. So much so that unless and and, and churches are, are surrendering to, to their cause and pastors are already kneeling before this, I'm saying, why? Why? We're not going to surrender to some Marxist ideals. We know what that brings. It's godless. It's evil. I will surrender to the King of kings and Lord of lords. And unless you... Surrender, however, you will be targeted. But the world does not dictate the agenda. God does. And he does it through his spirit, his word, and his people. Think of Joseph languishing in an Egyptian jail for years, right? And you're saying, how could this, how could this, individual, change the destiny of an Egyptian empire. How? It happened. And think of Daniel in a den from one emperor to another to another and Daniel was still there, right? Uh, there in the lion's den and with the power of the mighty Persian Medo-Persian Empire, and there your, your servant, your man, is in a den with lions. How on earth is he going to influence the empire? And 
And you and I are in this world equipped with nothing more and nothing less than God's Spirit within us. Calling us to preach and pray that his kingdom come, his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It doesn't feel like much. You wake up in the morning and say, oh, how long, O oh Lord, right? But don't get discouraged. Don't. Don't get discouraged and forget that the kingdom of heaven is like leaven that leavens up the whole lump. It is powerful. It is quiet. It is mysterious, unnoticed. Yet it advances, advances till it permeates the world. Let's conclude. John MacArthur um, illustrates the, the main point made by these two parables and he says something like this. He says, small things can have, can ultimately very large effects. He says, think about all music, all symphonies, all concertos, oratorios, hymns, songs. All music comes basically from eight notes. And if you were the Beatles, you'd just need two, right? Small beginnings, profound, extensive results. And, and, and I hope and I pray that believers are encouraged by the truth in these two wonderful little parables. Never despise the apparent smallness of the success of Jesus' kingdom on this earth because it is his kingdom. He is our king. From something very small, the ultimate success of the kingdom is assured. It will not fail. Because God is within it, no matter what. This is encouragement for believers. Now, for unbelievers, to those who are still unbelievers, the good news of his kingdom is being offered to you. He will one day return to this earth to claim his rightful rule and you will have to stand before him then. May you be given the ears to hear the eyes to see the news of his kingdom now. May it change you, but you need to surrender. Repent and come to him. But this period of grace that we are living in now will not be there forever. And may you trust him today as your saviour and lord. Amen.